You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For the Now media production. It is normal at this stage of the evening to say a big hello to all of you, Null and Voiders, as we call you. This is actually the 54th episode of your number one sports podcast. As ever, we cover the big stories, the big sports stories, and bring you a superb guest. It just doesn't get much better than that, does it? My name's Tony Grundy. And mine's Andy Callahan. Now, apart from watching live sport, and we did both of us quite a bit of that, and we'll come to that in a second, you went off to watch Top Gun, didn't you? What's, what's that all about? Uh, oh, it was brilliant. It was me reliving. Uh, I've waited 36 years for the uh, sequel to come out, Tony, and it was absolutely worth every single day of that 36-year wait. It was brilliant. I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, but if anyone loved the first one, the original, then go and watch this one. There's enough hark backs and enough links back for it to be great, but without it being sort of schmaltzy and sentimental. It was absolutely superb. All right. Well, I'll take your word for it because I didn't see the first one. But uh, let's get down to the more serious business, shall we? Yep, yep. Weekend sport watching. Uh, and for me, Champions League in Paris, I definitely watched that. Uh, as well, as far as I'm concerned, it was the right result if you take my uh, um, pointers from last week about wanting Liverpool to lose in my wearing my Manchester hat. But they lost 1-0 to Madrid. That's 14 times Madrid have won that. Lots of poor losers, though, around. I don't buy into that, the thinking. Uh, for instance, somebody said to me, they had 19 shots on target. And I said, yeah, but goalkeepers are there to stop you. And Courtois did a really good job. He's a top goalkeeper, but mm. he did it really well. And afterwards, to hear the inane natterings of Steven Gerrard and Michael Owen, both Scousers, um, you know, for them to be talking uh, and saying, well, it's obvious that Liverpool are the best team in Europe after the game had finished, I think is pathetic. I, you know, they've both gone down in my estimations, obviously great players in their time, but as pundits, you can't be saying that. Well, you know, surely the team that have just won the trophy that is the European Champions League trophy, they are the best team in Europe by virtue of the fact they're the team that have just beaten or come out on top of all the teams in Europe. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I can certainly see how they would say Liverpool played really well oh, and yeah. probably with a better side on the night. And you can still be the better side and still play really well and lose in any sport. But... Yeah. Yeah, to say they're the best team in Europe, uh, I think Madrid are the best team in Europe because they're the team that are holding the trophy. Yeah, and for the 14th time, by the way. Now, so I, I thought that was pathetic, utter tosh from those two. Liverpool lost, so get your head round that. You're losing us more and more listeners up in uh, up on the Wirral and in Liverpool, Tony, as you, every time you speak. <laughs> I am determined to speak the truth on this one. And the next thing to talk about is the delayed start and the crowd problems. For the Liverpool fans, that's a whole nother matter. We know what the score was, but in that terms, we don't know. 
and there's going to be an independent inquiry into the problems between the fans and the security forces. It didn't look good, though, whichever side you happen to be on of that. No, I mean, we don't know what caused it, what happened. You know, there have been, I think, you know, all three parties involved, the French authorities, UEFA and Liverpool uh, fans have all blamed each other. And, you know, so I, I think it would be until the commission have done their inquiry would be remiss to comment. But it looked pretty horrific, you know, in terms of it, it, sort it of did. tear gas yeah. and everything else and the crowds and looked horrendous. And I think whichever way the investigation comes out, I think certainly embarrassing for the French because, you know, not only have they held the Champions League final in Paris this weekend, next year they've got the Rugby World Cup all around France and the year after that they've got the Olympics in Paris. So certainly from the perspective of the authorities, whatever happened and whatever caused it, it didn't look good for them and doesn't make them look good. It, it doesn't and I think... Um... You know, I know my brother lives in France. The French police don't take prisoners. Well, actually they do and they did. So there's going to be an awful lot in that inquiry to cover. So let's move swiftly on to the other playoff final, or rather final at Wembley. And that was the championship playoff final where Nottingham Forest joined Fulham and Bournemouth in the Premier League next season. I'm pleased for them personally. And it's an interesting fact that at the at the in September, they were bottom of the championship when yeah. Steve Cooper took over as manager. He's a very unassuming, laid-back sort of character, but he's had a, a dramatic effect on that Knott's Forest team. So uh, well done to them. And they do play an attacking style of football. I think we'll be welcome. Like all, you know, always at this stage when three teams are coming up, we probably quite cruelly will say, which two of those three are going to go down. Should we give them a week or two? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've always had a soft spot for Forrest. I think, you know, um, goes back to in my younger days, I, I, I loved Cluffy. I think Cluffy was a great character and I think the game's much sadder for not having characters like Brian Clough in the game, you know, with him saying, hey, young man, and talking <laughs> away. I, 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 So I've always had a soft spot for Forrest. I thought they always played nice football, uh, attractive football under Cluffy. And yeah, Cluffy was just such a character and all the stories you hear about him. So really pleased for Nottingham Forest. Um, I guess it was a, a double uh, disappointment for Huddersfield fans, though, after not only losing at Wembley, in the um, playoff final, but also losing at uh, Spurs in the Rugby League Challenge Cup final. They lost to Wigan with a very late try, an amazing try, fan, fantastic try in the last five minutes by Wigan to, to, to steal the um, cup away from them. Normally that would have been played at Wembley, um, but it was moved from its traditional home down the road to a White Hart Lane because of the playoff finals. So, yeah, Huddersfield Town fans and Huddersfield rugby fans, I think if they stayed for both, they'd have been disappointed in both games. Very, very. What about uh, the Union side of things, the Challenge Cup? Yeah, well, we had two, rugby had two European finals in France, in Marseille, on Friday and Saturday night without any trouble whatsoever. So I don't know what that says about rugby fans compared with football. But uh, in terms of the uh, Challenge Cup, which is the, I guess, rugby's equivalent of the Europa League, then Lyon beat Toulon in an all-French affair. 
Um, good game, but I think it was a it, it was probably one for the purists a little bit more than a than necessarily an attractive flowing game of rugby. And then on Saturday, what an absolute cracker in the Champions Cup final! Uh, La Rochelle, who went very close last year, beat Leinster with the last play of the game to win the cup. The try took them. They didn't need the conversion in the end, but the guy was then able to take the full minute, minute and a bit, uh, taking the conversion, which meant the clock had gone dead and no chance for Leinster to reply. But what a great result. Um, 70,000 crowd in Marseille on Saturday evening. And then yesterday when they were back in the port in La Rochelle doing a little bit like an open top bus tour, they had 30,000 fans and supporters all flooded out into the port in La Rochelle to support them. It's just great. The, uh, the, the, the Jaune et Noir, um, the yellow and black all across the, uh, all across the um, port just looked fantastic. So really great to see. And, I've made no bones about in the fact of the past, I'm not Johnny Sexton's greatest fan. No. I think he's someone who moans. He gets a lot of too much protection from referees. And as I've said before, he's got a face like a wrinkled crisp packet. And uh, <laughs> for me, one of the highlights of the weekend and the season was seeing the look of despair on that face like a wrinkled crisp packet as the conversion was being taken to take the title away from Leinster and to win it for La Rochelle. So that for me was absolute pure joy in a very sort of a Machiavellian type way. <laughs> yeah, my, my sort of Liverpool sense. Yeah. Mm. OK. Uh, cricket I had next because first test at Lords always an inspiring day. I used to go regularly to that with a friend of mine who was a, an Australian supporter. He's actually Australian <clears throat> when they, each time they came. And that first day is always, <clears throat> excuse me, always very special. And this time it'll be even more special in the sense that as New Zealand were playing, it's this Thursday. And of course, the new coach, where did he come from? New Zealand plus new captain. Uh, and, and I think Stokes has, well, there'll be pressure on him, but he's a brilliant cricketer. So mm. is he going to lead us through to this next period? It's not going to happen overnight, but hopefully there will be a change in attitude from Thursday onwards? Well, certainly, I mean, BMAC, as he's being affectionately called, Brendan McCullum, the coach, has uh, come out and said what I was saying last summer, I hasten to uh, add for our dear listeners who may cast their minds back to me complaining about England's rotation policy and not playing the best players at the right times. Uh, BMAC has come out and said that he doesn't believe in chopping and changing. He will pick the best team available to him at the time. Now, the best team available is depleted, and we'll get onto that a bit later in terms of talking in more detail about it. We've got eight top-level bowlers out injured for the game. So, um, you know, quite how England are managing to keep breaking fast bowlers, I'm not 100% sure, and we'll talk about that a bit later on with our guest, who's much more uh, knowledgeable than we are. But one other thing that's uh, noted, you said it's always a good day at Lords, and I would agree with you. I've been been lucky enough a couple of times to go to Lords on the opening day of a Test match. This time, the MCC, the ECB, and the organisers are getting absolutely panned for the ridiculous prices because there's actually eighteen and a half thousand unsold seats over the first four days of the Test, which is unheard of for a test match yeah. at Lords. Now, whether it's the fact that England have played 
and not won a test series in is it 15 and not won one one test in sorry not won a test series in nine and won one test in the last 17 so the performances that could be part of it but also i mean the eye-watering prices 160 pounds for an adult ticket is the cheapest that's still on sale at the moment that, that's, for a day that's ticket for one day at the test yeah. and the cheapest children's ticket under 16s that was available when i went on the website this afternoon to do my research 136 pounds for a junior now the mcc have been at pains to point out there were a lot of tickets for juniors on sale at 20 quid and 10 quid if they were they'd been bought up fairly quickly and now they're the only ones left so yeah you know in terms of i mean it almost became a get a grip for this week but those sort of eye-watering prices, I think, you know, they're pricing fans away from the games. Yeah, very much so. OK, a uh, note about the French Open, again in Paris, uh, is into its second week now. And, and as we record this, Djokovic and Nadal are going to be playing in the quarterfinal. And maybe one of the last times it might be that you'll have that combination uh, with Federer coming to the end near the end of his career as well. It's a time for change, but uh, it'll be interesting to see the result of that one. I mean, certainly, I mean, you know, when you look at some of the other top seeds that have been knocked out, I mean, uh, Tsitsipas, the Greek number four seed, was knocked out by a 19-year-old Dane, uh, Holger Rune, and the number one seed, uh, Medvedev, was knocked out by Marin Cilic. So, uh, yeah, you know, basically you've got to say whoever comes out on top out of Nadal and Djokovic is probably going to be the bookies' favourite after that. But I fancy Cilic or Cilic or however it's pronounced as an outside bet, which probably means he'll get knocked out in the next round, given (laughs) my uh, track record of predictions. Okay, All right. I've got a note on athletics and Diamond League. You've got a, uh, a thought on that? Yeah, I mean, we were obviously lucky enough to be at Birmingham last week, and we've talked a lot about that. This weekend, the Diamond League moved on to Austria. Um, There was a great win for Keely Hodgkinson in the 800 metres to follow up her win at Birmingham the previous week. And again, it looked tight on the top end. With 200 metres to go, she pulled away. Just such great talent to watch her in terms of the way she's absolutely bossing the field you know they everyone thought oh 200 meters to go is she in it and it was quite bunched and she just powered away pulled away so great to watch her um get another win under her belt matt hudson smith not a name that a lot of people are familiar with um he's based in the us but he is a brit and he actually set a british national record in the 400 meters and that broke Ewan Thomas's record from years ago. I, I can't remember exactly how long I'm thinking it was yeah. sort of 14, 15 years. Um, and Dina Asher Smith ran her best time of the season, but this week she was fourth in the hundred meters. So, you know, looking good there in terms of the British competitors and British talent um, ahead of the uh, Commonwealth games next month. Yeah, I've got a brief note there on F1. Verstappen didn't win in Monaco, and nor did Leclerc. In fact, it was Sergio Perez that won. And I I note, and sometimes I think, how does that get in the papers? Verstappen's dad wasn't pleased. Well, I don't suppose his son was too pleased either, but somehow that made the papers and and made me want to uh, chuckle somewhat. But anyway, 
uh, racing, and obviously with the Epsom Derby this week, probably appetite that uh, Leicester Piggott uh, chose that time ahead of a big race. He was always involved in uh, at 86 to pass on. He's died. And, and quite a, I always thought he was quite a character, different racing style, literally, on the horse. Mm. But over the years, I mean, he didn't retire finally till he was about 60. So he was a very unusual character. And, and as we know, he did spend one year in jail, courtesy of HMRC, uh, <laughs> and, and lived his latter days in Switzerland, probably appropriately. I mean, but, yeah. Uh, Certainly, he's one of one of the real characters. You know, sort of. If if you talk about you know horse racing and the real well known characters and jockeys over the last twenty years, you'd sort of be talking probably Lester Piggott, Willie Carson, Frankie Dottori, and AP McCoy. They'd be the four top names that most people would recognise and know, and he'd yeah. certainly be at the forefront of that. So, yeah, really sad to see that, but certainly, I mean, the fact that he was still competing, you know, winning major races, was it the St. Ledger he won at the age of 54, 55? Yeah, so, yeah, phenomenal career, and, yeah, you know, thoughts go to his family and friends. Okay. Um, talk about family and friends. On contact, Simon Callard sent his... Uh, up-to-date note. Uh, he says, I'm getting into the routine of this now, he starts off by saying. Uh, so this week, for the game at Macclesfield, we have ha had confirmed that former Sheffield United Spurs and Fulham midfielder Michael Brown is definitely playing in the ex-pros team alongside Celtic and Wigan centre-back Gary Caldwell. More players to be announced in the next few weeks. Tickets, he says, for this can be purchased from Macclesfield Town Football Club via their website. Adults, talking about ticket prices before, adults £5, under 16s £3. Just a reminder to say the match is Saturday the 2nd of July, kickoff 2pm be between a, a Hollyoaks team and a team of ex-pros plus some TV celebrities. All funds, all funds raised go towards research into multiple myeloma, an illness that Simon is fighting very much for at the moment with his own illness. That's an incurable blood cancer for those that don't know it. So he's doing a great job in raising those funds because it will all go to research for multiple myeloma. That's brilliant. And funds and, and, and awareness being raised. So, uh, yep. and Hollyoaks, Tony, because you know, you, I know you're not really down with the kids. That's <laughs> a, a Channel Four soap opera that's uh, a regular um, on daytime television or early evenings. So, uh, just so that you know, yes, I'm not. I'm not totally up to date with it. It's it's fair to say, but great that they've got them, and I think mm. you know they'll get a good crowd. And good that Macclesfield Town have made their ground available free of charge. So that's. That's great. You got a contact, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Kevin Francis that was on with us last week uh, came back and said, uh, thanks ever so much, guys. Really enjoyed it. Um, I was nervous to begin with, but uh, you made it very enjoyable, very easy to chat. So, uh, and he's uh, confirmed we were a bit unsure last week when we were chatting. He, he had a bit of a, a sort of query as to where the start line and where the area that he'd be doing his 100k walk in the uh, Peak District is. So thankfully, he has confirmed it before the event. Um, and it, it, it is going <laughs> to yeah. be Bakewell that he, he thought it was. So, uh, yeah, he's confirmed to us that it is going to be Bakewell, definitely. OK, next up is Get a Grip. 
Yeah, um, for me this week, it's the International Gymnastics Federation or the uh, Federation Internationale Gymnastique, as they're called, because uh, a lot of these federations seem to take the French one. So FIG, they've announced the ban of three Northern Irish gymnasts from the Commonwealth Games next month because they previously competed for Ireland in events where Northern Ireland has not had a team competing. So Reese McLennigan actually won the gold for Northern Ireland in gymnastics at the last Commonwealth Games in Brisbane four years ago. But him, Eamon Montgomery and Ewan sorry, have been devastated not to be able to take part in Birmingham due to the arbitrary decision by the FIG. Basically, they've been told they'll have to renounce their Irish nationality on their gymnastics license if they want to compete for Northern Ireland in the Commonwealth Games. It's just ridiculous. And yet this decision is in breach of an international treaty. Uh, Many parts of the Good Friday Agreement that I personally and strongly disagree with, but it sets out that people from Northern Ireland can be Irish, British or both. And that's the key part. So not only is this decision by FIG totally unreasonable, come completely out of the blue and totally unexpected, it could also be unlawful. It is the only governing body that's made this decision in the 13 sports that Northern Ireland has competitors at the Commonwealth Games in. So they're completely swimming against the tide and against the street. Um, And this basically leaves these three athletes and potentially more in the future completely in limbo. They're either being told you can't compete at the games unless you renounce your Irish license, which means they then might not be able to compete in other events where Northern Ireland doesn't have a team. So, you know, previously and historically and what people have been able to in other sports is as part of the Good Friday Agreement, an international treaty, no less, an international agreement, have been able to pick and choose as suits. But the FIG, which seems quite appropriate, as they seem not to give a fig for international Mm. law, need to totally and utterly get a grip. Okay. Uh, We'll obviously hear more on that. Uh, But with that, you know, 28th of July is the start of the Commonwealth Games, for goodness sake. Mm. These guys guys need to know if there's going to be any... Uh, further movement and they've that. been warned the there's a, a a sports solicitor a very well-known and renowned sports solicitor in northern ireland has pretty much said to them if they would take it to the court of, of arbitration for sport which would seem to be their only route well they might win but it would be a lengthy costly approach because of the unique situation of the good friday agreement and what it, you know the way that was set up to confer british and irish citizenship on people from Northern Ireland. So basically, if they were to do that, then the Commonwealth Games would have been and gone before they were able to get a solution to that. So, yeah, just absolutely ridiculous that the reigning champion can't defend his crown because of some blazer sat in an office well away from the game. Yeah, get a grip, as you rightly say. What I'll do is get a grip on the fact I'm going to introduce our guest for tonight our special guest. Tonight's guest is a friend of mine over many years. I first met him in Reading when I was running the radio station there, Radio 210, as it was then. He set up his very successful business in Berkshire, Berkshire Physiotherapy, some 35 years ago. 
he appeared many times on air to help our listeners with their therapy issues. He always managed to deliver his expertise with a sense of fun as well. So I thought it would be great for Null and Void listeners to meet up with him tonight. Please welcome Jim Atkins, who's Clinical Director of Berkshire Physiotherapy, to Null and Void. Hi, Jim. How are you doing, mate? I'm good. Nice to see you again. Yeah, a few years, mate. A few years. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. <laughs> and, and Andy, obviously, uh, yeah, welcome you tonight as well. Yeah, great to meet you, Jim. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, one of the things we like to do is track back a li- little bit first. How did that all start? Because you were at Cardiff University. Did you, did you go there thinking, one day I'm going to be a top physiotherapist in sport? Or what was your thinking at that point? Um, at that point, I went to Cardiff and I did um, remedial gymnastics and recreational therapy. And I just loved um, basically that profession specialized in exercise therapy um, and particularly group therapy. So we qualified as like PE teachers and then went on to run exercise in rehabilitation centers in hospitals etc and so I've always had a real passion for um, exercise and exercise therapy and I love playing sport myself I played um, county rugby county tennis and the, the sport I achieved most at was athletics I used to run 400 meters nationally I ran for Cardiff I ran for Reading I ran for Cardiff um nowhere near as fast as these guys are nowadays but I loved I love sport you know everything and I wasn't really going into it because of sport I was just going into it because I just thought it was good fun um and a part of what really got me into sports injuries as part of my year in London I worked at Camden Medical Rehabilitation Centre And in those days, you know, we're talking about 40 years ago, sports injuries didn't exist. You know, it was, there was no such thing. And in those days, all the top football clubs and uh, top sportsmen in London who got long-term injuries used to come to Camden Medical Rehabilitation Centre. So we had people from like Tottenham and Arsenal and QPR and all the top teams. And Fred Street, who was the England physio, used to come and he came one day and checked out his players and I got talking to him. And he said about going to Arsenal to um, see what they did. So I used to go up on a Wednesday and um, watch what they were doing. And um, I mean, it was all very... Compared to what we do, you know, what's done in sports medicine now is, you know, it's amazing how it's all changed. But uh, it was the start of it. I remember while I was there, they were actually building a gym. Um, And nowadays, if you look at, you know, what's in gyms and uh, the conditioning that goes into top sportsmen and women is incredible. You know, I mean, I, you know, I've played a lot of rugby and I love rugby. And I was actually at Tottenham for the rugby league final um, on Saturday. But, you know, all the, all the conditioning that goes on, all top sportsmen, you know, they have a timetable. They know what they're doing every part of the day, you know, during the week. They know when they're doing stretching. They know when they're doing um strength work balance stuff it's all laid out it's all 
so different to how it was 40 years ago. I mean, I think we all remember when the height of technology was probably the uh, the, the bucket of cold water and a sponge when we yeah. were playing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was it. I mean, people used to run on um, with a bucket and a sponge and literally put I mean, nowadays, when you think about all the germs that were in the bucket and the sponge, <laughs> and you throw that on people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was bizarre. Yeah, I remember once I did the physio for um, Berkshire Physio and it was under lights and it was sponsored by one of the medical companies and they'd given me this case and I, because I was nervous and everything, I, and, and it was a big case, had, you open it up, it was like a small trunk and you had it by the edge of the pitch, somebody got injured. In those days, you couldn't take players off, there was no substitute, you had to patch them up. Um and, you know, it was quite a big thing patching somebody up because they might have to last the rest of the game. Yeah. Um, so I went on, I patched somebody up. And in, in my kit, I had lots of different pairs of scissors. And I had these scissors. They're about nine inches long, which I'd used to cut some tape on. Anyway, when I got off the pitch, um, this game was being played at night. I think it was about half past seven at night. Anyway, I got off the pitch and... I, I just went through the bag to see what everything was out. I thought, where are those scissors? Where are those? And then I suddenly realised I'd left these nine-inch scissors on the pitch. <laughs> and I thought, well, somebody's going to get a serious injury in a minute. So I had to speak to the ref and say, look, can we just stop the game a minute because we need to get these scissors because somebody's <laughs> going to get stabbed, which wouldn't go down well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So that gave you, uh, uh, obviously, a taste for top level sport and you 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 represent you know you you worked at international level not just not you know at, at commonwealth games and places like that what are your fondest memories of that kind of work because that's top level work isn't it yeah i think i mean i treated some people in the british athletics team and um but there just was not any um, i remember um, I'm not a canoeist, but um, the head of British canoeing was from Reading. And so I saw all these canoeists. Um, and when I look back at them and the dedication they put in, you know, I know two canoeists, they were young. They took a year out without being paid just to get to the Olympics. Um, nowadays, we have funding, you know, they had to pay for everything. And, and just uh, amazing some of these guys who who were so dedicated to what they were doing um, without any support. Um, and it's just great the way the lottery supporting these athletes and sportsmen and women. But throughout all the, um, you know, when I was at the Commonwealth Games, I treated a guy, I treated Linford Christie with a hamstring injury on, on the table. The next guy, because they, they'd come in, the next guy to come in, uh, was a guy from Botswana and he had gone to town to sell a goat and um, he, they had the trials for the Commonwealth Games in this wherever it was and he in, in a field and he'd run and won it and he was now on their team running 5,000 metres you know and that was like the real essence of sport where you've got like a top level guy and this other African guy who'd never been out of Africa and never actually had run on a tartan track before. He'd only run in a 
on a, on a field. Um, so yeah, not, not even expecting to compete at their trials, and there no. he was. Uh, which games was it you were at, Chip? Um, in Edinburgh. I can't remember the 86, year. 86, because my uncle uh, was part of the shooting team, the Scotland shooting team. Okay. Were there that year. Yeah. No, it was, um, oh, it was brilliant, you know. And, um, yeah, there's lots of memories. I love, I, I've been very lucky to be involved with something that, uh, you know, to do something you love doing is fantastic, you know. And then... Um, I set up, um, when I was at the hospital, I treated this guy, Bill Mowbray, who had a pub in Reading. And uh, we often talked, he ran a football team and a netball team. And he, he said, there's no facilities for sports people uh, around. And there wasn't. And people just were not really inter interested in sports injuries. And it all came to a head one day when he, on a Saturday, one of his footballers had been injured and um, I can't remember that he rang me up and I said, well, send him down to the Royal Barks for a casualty. And he went down there. And anyway, when he arrived, they asked him how he got injured and he said, playing football. And they said to him, well, get to the back of the queue. Yeah. And it, was, it was that sort of mentality, yeah. you know, 40 years ago, if you injured yourself, playing sport is your fault. fault yeah <laughs> and it's changed so much now and it's rightly so you know when you've got people who've put and you know we're encouraging people to get fit and um stay healthy and um you know medicine should be you know supporting them so yeah 35 years ago i started berkshire physiotherapy center and now i'm the medical director of berkshire physio um we have sort of 17 staff, we have seven physios and um, yeah, it's been brilliant. Yeah. Because I think uh, we, we've both come across you, you and your team, you all work with the uh, Reading Half Marathon. I, I was saying, Tony, I, I've never actually availed myself of, of, of that, but I've heard everyone who has, has always said it makes such a difference in their recovery after a half marathon. Yeah. We run that clinic um, from, well, we started at eight o'clock in the morning. So we actually have quite a lot of people. I think the last one we did, we had about 200 and over 200 people who come before the marathon um, because they've got little niggles. And you'd be amazed how many people who turn up on the Sunday morning and they've suddenly got, you know, pain in their ankle or their Achilles tendon or wherever, back pain. I mean, we've had people who've turned up and we've said, well, how long have you had the back pain? They say, well, three or four months. And you think, well, you're just about to run in an hour's time. And now you're doing something about it. And there's been people I've said, look, I don't think you should run because I think I think your injury is serious enough. Um you, you know that if you run this is going to get seriously worse but a lot of it is is telling just showing people that they don't have a, a massive problem that it's okay and they need the reassurance that this is okay to run or not okay to run um and a lot of them we we, we treat but some of them it's just the advice that they need yeah I mean, you say a little bit of reassurance yeah, yeah. i mean i i I remember vividly you, you setting up the company in, in Reading. And uh, I know with the radio station at that time in the 80s, you know, we'd get you in at various times. Mm. 
And, and when we were chatting the other day, you were remembering some of the things you did live on air, exercises and so on. Doesn't yeah. sound like particularly good radio, but it it became great fun with the breakfast show presenter, Graham Ledger, didn't it? Yeah, that was really good. I, we did, um, I can't remember whether it was Graham's idea or your idea, but we wanted three weeks before the Reading Half Marathon to do an exercise a day. So we we recorded a week and then played them in the morning something that people could do and the idea was it would start with exercises in bed and then exercises that they could do standing up in the bathroom then more intense so the third week they were a bit more a lot of them were stretching and all that, but uh, we actually recorded it live so they weren't just me talking about it we actually did it and graham did it on the on the studio floor it was quite an interesting <laughs> if there had been cameras there it would have been hilarious i tell you yeah, no, happy happy days, those proper local radios, as they say, and I do say even today. But, you know, clearly that's been a very successful business for you. Um, mm. But ca can we just take you on one area where we specifically, Andy and I, have been talking about cricket, and Andy mentioned it earlier in the podcast, about the number of fast bowlers that are actually have got serious injuries, many of them stress fractures of the back. Yeah, I think it's five at the moment. Five players are out with back stress fractures. So it's uh, Saqib Mahmood, Ollie Stone, Jofra Archer and Matt Fisher. Sorry, four are out with stress fractures in the back. And two others, Ollie Robinson and Sam Curran, are out with other serious long-term back injuries. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we seem to be sort of... There seems to be a problem somewhere. And uh, Tony and I were wondering... Is it the amount of bowling they're either doing or not doing? Because you look at someone like, uh, you know, back in the 60s and 70s in county cricket, players would be bowling, I don't know, tens of thousands of deliveries a year compared with now on central contracts. It's very limited. So is it that or is it technique or, or what are your thoughts? I mean, without obviously being able to see the players up close and personal, Jim. Are, are there any thoughts you've got on what could be causing this almost epidemic? I mean, we know that um, depending on which country has done the research, but any bowlers, any cricketers that are injured, between 70 to, 60 to 70 percent of cricketers that are injured are fast bowlers. Wow. And um, some countries, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, their statistics are slightly higher than ours. I mean, at the moment, ours seem quite high. But if you look at the biomechanics um, of bowling, it's a very stressful um, activity on your spine. Well, on, not just on your spine, on your body, because what you're doing is you're running up at pace I mean, it's interesting that none of these people really are spin bowlers and spin bowlers don't really have these issues. They might have some shoulder problems, but not back and hip problems or knee problems. But basically, in a, a fast bowler is running up at X miles an hour, but sprinting, basically. And then they, when they reach the crease, they put the opposing leg. So if you're right-handed, you put the left foot down and then you sort of pivot your body around it. And so there's a degree of deceleration on one side of your body. I, I having looked at, uh, for, I specialize in biomechanics and I, you know, I, I don't think it's, uh, I think it's a combination of uh, technique, 
um, the how fast they're trying to bowl. They, they, you know, they don't seem to bowl at 75%. They try and bowl at 100% all the time. Um, and I'm sure that some of it is down to biomechanics. Um, I don't know whether they anybody's screening that, but um, years ago, I remember um, Jonathan Edwards' coach, you know, the triple jumper, a lot of injuries. Athletics has got the same problem. Most injuries in athletics are due, happen in training, not at, at actual events. Mm-hmm. And that's because in training, you're doing more and more events. You know, an Olympic uh, triple jump, you might have six jumps. You know, in training, I've been on some camps where they've been doing 30 jumps in the morning in triple jump. Now, in triple jump, in the three stages, the, the reason I, th- I mentioned triple jump is that deceleration phase is very similar to what happens in a fast bowler. When And Jonathan Edwards, coach, who I think is the first person who did this, realized that it was incredibly stressful. And on that hop stage in a triple jump, you take somewhere between five to seven times your body weight when your your leg hits the ground. Now, if you're 10 stone, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to work out the amount of pressure that's happening in your knee and back. And so what he did, he decided to change all the training into three, he broke it down into three elements and he trained. So Jonathan Edwards would just do one of those three elements and then do a jump so he wouldn't spend all training jumping he would do one of these three elements and then one jump a session and um that obviously worked really well for him i think fast bowlers i know coaches want them to do lots of bowling but you know you have to understand it's very stressful when you plonk that leg down Uh, there are things you can do to help you can wear shock absorbers in your shoes um, but the biggest thing for me is there's more science now. When, when you plonk your, your lead leg down, what happens is the joint just below your ankle called the subtaloid joint, that um, controls where the weight goes. So what you want is the weight to go through the center of your foot, up your shin, the center of your knee, through your hip and then into your spine but if your ankle rolls in or out or your foot turns in and out and it only has to be a few degrees then it means the stress that you're generating and we know it's stressful is going to cause some problems um and i don't know whether somebody's looking at that but i know in athletics they've done that they've used a gate in motion system and it's been open to quite a lot of um athletes um, Mo Farrow and uh, Paula Radcliffe use it and uh, hopefully the, the cricketers are using it as well but we've just invested in this latest technology of foot scanning and called uh, gait and motion and it, basically what it does is it tells you where the weight is transferred in your foot and in your body because if you're a false bowler and you're bowling and then you plonk that foot down and that weight is not being um, transferred up your body in the correct manner then you're going to get a problem in your knee hip sacroiliac joint or your spine 
The sacroiliac joint is the joint between your hip and your spine. And that's another area that we see quite a lot of injury on. Mm. But um, yeah, so I, I think, I don't know where they're doing this, but um, I think one of the, the, the things they've got to look at is the biomechanics, not just of bowling, but to start off with is, are their biomechanics good and do they need to do something about it? So the, the investment you've made there in that gate uh, system, foot scanning system, does that mean that any sport, you'll get people from any sport and everyday life, I suppose, who will be coming to you, you're going to be able to help them even more. That's what's happening now, is it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's we've known for quite some time. I mean, for example, if you get somebody and you ask them to do a squat and you say, and this is something when I've done some work with coaches and I say to them, just get your athletes just to stand in front of you and do a squat, but keep your heels flat very quickly. And you can, if you assume or you think is the weight is going equally through both feet, both knees and both hips. Um, and this system, you just basically standing on a, on a sensor, which feeds a computer and it tells you, whether you have got the weight equally distributed, but not just that, it tells you where, what part of the foot is taking more weight. So it could be, you know, your heel, the outside of your foot, your arch, the transverse arch, the front of your, the ball of your foot, your big toe. And that will all, your feet are the bottom of the foundation. So if they are wrong, then obviously it then has a knock-on effect to the next joint, which will be your knee and your hip and then your back. I mean, a classic um, scenario is, and I've seen this done, I've done this with youngsters, and I say, if you say to youngsters, just line them up and you say, right, squat. If they've got tight Achilles tendons, so the calf muscles are tight um, and the Achilles tendons are tight, they haven't got enough dorsiflexion, which is the movement that pulls your foot upwards. So then what they do is they turn their feet out so they could be quite a good sportsman. They could be a good footballer, a rugby player, a cricketer, but they turn their feet out. And then, the, then they learn that, the brain learns that as the way to walk, run, jump and sprint and bowl. So if you, for example, have learnt you're a good young cricketer and you've had tight Achilles tendon and calf muscles and you've you land, so as you bowl, and somebody's picked you up in the school and then the county and that, and you bowl, and you slightly turn that left leg out, so you're right-handed, and it slightly turns out by two degrees, you learn that mechanism because the brain learns patterns of movement. And so when you land on that foot and it's slightly turned out, then the mechanisms that you have inside your body that act as shock absorbers, for example, your transverse arch and your longitudinal arch in your foot, they don't work as well. And then that pressure is transferred up the tibia, up the femur, up into your hip and then into your spine. And so, you know, I, I think they've got to look at, I mean, and hopefully there are biomechanic people who are looking at this, but um, you know, where, how they transfer weight. I mean, do you remember Malcolm Marshall? Yes. I think one of the, the, if I was ever coaching anybody to bowl, 
I would say he had one of the most efficient bowling actions ever. You know, as far as I know, he, he never was injured. I mean, I don't know about that, but he, he was able to generate a lot of pace off a fairly short run and he ran through. He didn't use this te technique where he, he stopped and pivoted. You know, he just ran onto that through on that lead leg. And I, I think a lot of it is um, not so much looking at the biomechanics of how somebody's delivering the ball, but literally how the what's happening to the foot, knee, hip as that lead leg hits the ground. Because if that's not in a good position, you're going to get injured. And I, I don't see, think... You see it on pitches where bowlers get quite upset if the the bit they're landing on of the pitch has been sort of scuffed up and they're slipping. You see them calling for it to be tamped down or for sand yeah. or um, sawdust to be put down. So I guess that's sort of a... That's an exaggeration of that. Yeah. Um, but if it's happening more from their biomechanics, I guess they wouldn't notice as much, Jim, as it would be as if it's if I'm landing awkwardly because the pitch is dodgy. Yeah. I mean, it, it's um, in all sports, I think um, what there must be for the human body, the human body is incredible, you know, and there, there are efficient ways of doing things. And what you want as a coach is to find the most efficient way for your athlete, your bowlers or that, to be able to do what they want, is to bowl fast. But if they are trying really hard um, to bowl, but they've got not just the wrong technique bowling, but, you know, the biomechanics are not good, um, then they're going to get injured. Do you remember Graham Dilly? I mean, yes, a very um, big guy, but great engine and a really bold with all his heart. You know, you look at pictures of him because he used to run and plonk that left foot down and then pivot around it. And that caused, eventually he had a lot of um, back problems because of that deceleration um, on that leg because... And that's the inherently that's the big problem for a fast bowler. That as you hit the ground with that lead leg and you pull the arm over, one side of your body is decelerating while the other side is in, is is increasing. If it's a multiplied effect of the their weight going through it, I mean, you look at some of these guys. I mean, some of the the current the modern game guys like Joffrey Archer, they're big guys, you know, big muscular guys. That means that that what you know they're going to be fourteen, fifteen stone sort of thing. Mm. That weight going through that front landing leg, that's suddenly a, a lot of weight going through one leg. Yeah. And that all gets transferred up in, into your body. And there's only so much your body will tolerate before it starts breaking down. And you're either going to get stress fractures or strained muscles, ligaments, capsules, tendons, joints. And, you know, people will, um, you know, people will be sore after training um, because, because it's, I think they could learn quite a lot of what Jonathan Edwards did um, and mm. his coach did 
may be that you break bowling down and particularly fast bowling into three phases. And so when you're doing a training session, you don't get bowlers to bowl flat out, you know, and do, I don't know, in training six overs flat out, but you just break each element down and do a little bit of each. Yeah. And it's, I mean, fascinating hearing going through that with you, Jim, because I only played at, well, I played schoolboy cricket, but then I played village cricket many years later. And I was a sort of medium fast, you know, sort of eight or nine paces and putting a lot of shoulder into it and so on. But the injuries that I got, I had an Achilles strain and I also had plantar fasciitis, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, when you think about what you're saying, and, and actually I know because I run that way, I do plant my left foot turning outwards and I did come across, you know. So that must relate. Lots of people must be able to relate to that. And the fact that you now got the technology to be very precise about that means that you can help even more people. And one yeah. of the things I, I was thinking, Jim, is that um, you must tell our dear listener, how they can get in contact with you best. Is it website? What's the best way of getting in touch with Berkshire Physiotherapy? Yeah, go on the website, berkshirephysiotherapy.co.uk. And if you want to ring the clinic on 01189668601, there's an email, which is info at berkshirephysio.co.uk. Um, if you want more information about this technology, it is quite new to us. Mm-hmm. And as I say, British athletics have been using it for quite a while. And Paula Radcliffe and Mo Farah have, have used it. And there are sportsmen and women who've got it. If there's a, what happens, it's basically in three bits. There's a postural assessment, a balance assessment, and a dynamic assessment. And each bit uh, gives us information about what happens to the foot and the weight as you transfer weight on it. Now, if, for example, your foot slightly pronates two or three degrees as you land on it, what we can make is a 3D printed orthotic, which right. fits inside your shoe. Yeah. And that controls the amount of deviation of the foot. So it, it's, it's, it's called correctable and what that does, and you can build in a shock absorber to it and you can hold the whole of the arch in the foot so that when you do land, you don't have to worry about whether it's rolling in or out. The orthotic will do it. You just wear these things inside your shoes. Over time, then, Jim, would that almost teach the foot to act what we'd say normally or properly or would someone always need the orthotic? If you're an adult, I'd say they probably always need them. If you're a youngster, it will teach it. Because once you start, once the bones have developed in that way um, and all all the structures, you know, all the soft tissue um, will become stronger or weaker in one element. Mm. Um, so, so for a youngster, it'll probably, it could be a temporary thing, but for an adult, I'd say you, you need to wear them, you know, all the time. And they're not difficult. They're just like, like insults. I mean, I, I wear them because I pronate on my right foot and I wear them to play golf. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I've got three pairs, one I wear at work, one I um, play golf in, and one I you go to the gym in. 
And once just for our got... listeners, pronate is is that when the foot kind of rolls in a bit? Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And it's quite easy to assess. I mean what you can't tell is the amount but if you stand in front of a mirror if you are if you don't have any shoes and socks on it's a good idea just to have shorts on so you can see your legs stand in front of a mirror and then squat down with your heels flat and see what happened those knobbly bits on the inside and outside of your ankles are called your malleoli and they should be sitting square but if you notice the one on the inside rolls in or you can't do it uh, with one foot turning out, that's another indication there's a problem at that level. And then if you look in the mirror, you'll very quickly see that your knee is now collapsing in, and that then is causing what we call a valgus knee, and then that puts pressure on your hip, which then puts pressure on your back. And you can see very quickly if you look in the mirror, you don't, uh, you know, it's, you don't need to be incredibly an expert in biomechanics to look at it. You can see there's a problem. Mm. Really fascinating stuff, Jim. I appreciate your time tonight and the level of expertise that you've brought to Null and Void on a subject that we've touched on before, but not in massive detail. We definitely have done tonight. And I hope mm -hmm. that we can come back to you again and talk on, on other areas as, as we develop things. And lovely that I personally have been able to get back in touch with you. It's, it's been great. Andy? I've learned loads. Hi, Jim. So thank you ever so much. And it's sort of a, it's changed my thought pattern that it was that bowlers these days are soft. You know, back, back in the day when they used to bowl, uh, morning till night, dawn till yeah. dusk. Um, you know, and actually it's not that at all. It, it could be other areas and things like that. So that's been been a real eye opener for me. Thank you. And uh, also, yeah. I mean, just to, in response to Tony's um, comments about it, as a medium fast bowler, even there suffering from injuries. I think I I, I had the trick. I, I was a spin bowler, so the only injury I ever suffered was indigestion from the cricket tea. <laughs> <laughs> well, great to speak to both of you. Cheers, cheers, Jim. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And we'll, Thanks, Jim. we'll go towards the clo close the podcast tonight. But thank you for being with us. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, fantastic stuff. And what a level of expertise that Jim's brought to the uh, podcast tonight. And great for me to renew the, the friendship of many, many years ago in, in radio. But trust me, top guy. So, uh, yeah, and I think alongside all the other stories tonight, Another good episode of, of Null and Void, and definitely that input from Jim is going to help us massively. In terms of sort of understanding quite what the pressure of uh, cricketers, um, the pressure they're putting their bodies through as fast bowlers, you know, really great to understand that. And and yeah, and, and then absolutely, uh, again, first-hand experience from someone who was there at the uh, Challenge Cup final on uh, Saturday. I, I really enjoyed watching the game from the comfort of my sofa, but it looked like an, <laughs> an amazing atmosphere to be there on the day. So, uh, yeah, someone who's obviously not just sort of uh, interested in sport, but actively supporting it still, uh, whilst also putting people back together again. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, so that brings us to the end of this uh, episode tonight. And as we always do say, make sure you're with us at a time and a place that suits you, because that's how podcasts work best. And, Make sure you're there next week, as I say, and enjoy more of the same. Cheers. Thanks very much. Thanks ever so much, folks. Speak to you all next week. 
Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan. Together, they don't add up to much. If you have a sports story, you can contact the team on n and v at forthenow.co.uk.